Galatians 2, 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? The word of the Lord. All right, good morning, guys. Try it again. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead Church. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here, and we're working our way through the book of Galatians, uh, which is a book that honestly has at the heart of it a fight, um, a fight worth having. And this morning, we are going to deal specifically with the issue of of conflict. Um, In our passage, we have two heavyweights stepping into the ring, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. And and we get a glimpse into some serious conflict, um, but it's healthy conflict. It's good conflict. And um, the reality is most of us have difficulty navigating conflict in a way that is healthy and good. Most of us tend to gravitate toward one of two ends of the scale. Uh, We either tend to be conflict avoidant, right? We just don't like it. We don't like hard conversations. We, don't, we tend to avoid that stuff. And some of us are, are conflict magnets. Um, we just don't understand why we're in so much conflict, not realizing that we're at the heart of it, right? Um, growing up, uh, I, uh, because of certain factors in my life, um, certain insecurities were triggered in my heart and, and um, some dysfunctions in my home kind of triggered that. And, and, and when I was young, um, I really was conflict avoidant. That was, I, had, I had really become adept at doing the duck and cover. Now, some of you don't really understand the duck and cover. Uh, I grew up in California, and um, that means we had earthquakes, and so we had to do duck and cover drills. I also was in school in the 80s, which meant that it was during the Cold War, which meant that you were constantly preparing for the potential nuclear holocaust that was coming. I don't know exactly how ducking under your desk was going to help you when an atomic bomb went off, but that's what we were taught to do. Uh, And the reality is that became the posture of my heart toward conflict. It really was. There was enough conflict in my home that I had just learned how to get really small and learned how to avoid it, right? Like like my whole goal was just to disappear. And and anytime conflict flared up, I went the opposite direction um, because I just, I had such a a strong negative reaction to it. It was so bad growing up in in a small town in Northern California that when I was in middle school, um, if I was walking down the street and I saw people walking toward me, um, I would cut down a side street or go to the other side of the street I just just for the potential that, that there might be some kind of conflict. I became a believer when I was 17. I, I went to college in, in Dubuque, Iowa, in this, this little Christian college, and I um, wasn't a believer when I went, but I became a believer there. God had his, that's a whole other story. But um, what ended up happening is the gospel. I heard this gospel of grace, that God loved me in spite of my sin, that, that, that I was forgiven because of the work of Christ, that I was secure not because of my performance, but because of his. And this message came in, man, and it, it started really grappling with the insecurities of my heart. I'm not a naturally passive person, right? I had adopted a passivity because of the conflict and because of the, the nature of, of my home growing up. And so the gospel kind of freed me out of that passivity. That wasn't necessarily a good thing right off the bat, though, because I went from conflict avoidant to kind of conflict magnet. I went from being a wimp to a bully. And, um, and so there were like situations where... Um, I just spoke up, right? It's a small Christian college, a couple hundred people. And you guys know, man, when you get in that fishbowl, you pretty soon you, you, there's not a lot to talk about. So pretty soon you just talk about all the people that are around you. You know what I'm saying? Like, like pretty soon you're, who's dating who and who likes who and who has a crush on who. And I just can't stand that kind of adolescent gossip. You know what I'm saying? Like that stuff just drives me crazy. Even then it drove me crazy. And so I would sit there and, and at the dinner table and as the conversation's going and somebody started sharing something juicy, you always know when they're doing that because they lower their voice and everybody kind of leans in. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's juicy. I want to hear this. Oh, yeah, I saw so-and-so doing so-and-so and this and this. And I'm like sitting there and, and, and I would just start saying gossip, 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 just quietly, but getting louder, gossip, 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 gossip. And pretty soon the people sitting next to me realized oh, he's calling them out, you know, and pretty soon the whole table realizes and the people that are gossiping actually get offended. Maybe they stop talking or maybe they get up and they walk away. Uh, It wasn't incredibly productive. I mean, here's the thing. During that season, um, some people became my fans. 
they liked my boldness. They liked the fact that, that I wasn't shy and, and that I would kind of jump in and, and stir stuff up. Some people became my enemies because they were alienated by my rudeness because I was rude. I mean, that wasn't the only situation. I did that a lot. Um, and, uh, and, and I was rude, right? But here's the thing. No one benefited. I went from being conflict avoidant to being um, conflict attractant. Like I was, I was willing to dive in and create conflict. But no one benefited, not those that I confronted, not those who watched, and definitely not me. I went from, from avoiding to attracting, and I was still doing it wrong. The solution isn't to stop avoiding, and the solution isn't to start doing. The key is to do it in the right way, right? Whether you're a conflict avoider or a conflict magnet, conflict is, is often an unpleasant but a necessary part of life. I mean, it really is. You can't avoid it. Um, it's necessary, but here's the thing, how we confront or how we avoid confrontation tells us a lot about our heart. How we confront or how we avoid confrontation tells us a lot about how we're growing in grace as followers of Christ. If there was ever a setting that would provoke conflict, it was the early church. The early church was, was really a mess. And in our passage this morning, what we're seeing is conflict coming to a head. It was in a, in a city called Antioch, and this was the Apostle Paul's home base in his early ministry. He worked out of Antioch, and, and he had um, been preaching the gospel, sharing people, you know, the message of Jesus, that he died and rose again so that you could be forgiven of your sin. And people were becoming believers, and there were Jewish believers, and there were Gentile believers, right? And they were all coming Together, it was a mixed community of Jewish converts and Gentile believers, and it was an uneasy company, especially considering the fact that they didn't do church like we do it, right? In the Western world, we do church in a very unique way. We have a cultural expression of it, right? We think of church as the gathering on Sunday. So we gather on Sunday and we go to church. If you're really involved, um, you go to a midweek gathering, right? We call them community groups, and it's, it's a place where we kind of know each other and are known and study the Bible and pray for each other and stuff like that. But the reality is most of your life is still lived in privacy. Most of your life is still lived separated from the world around you. We culturally crave that kind of separation. During the early church, they couldn't afford that luxury. Not only was it not part of their culture, but it was, um, it was unrealistic because these people, remember, these were Jewish people who became believers in Jesus. These were pagans and Gentiles who became Greeks, who became believers in Jesus. They no longer fit in with their home culture. So they had to form a new group and they had to find a new community. And so what that meant was they were thrown together. They were opening their homes. They were sharing lives. They were sharing meals and they were doing a lot of life on life. And that's difficult, right? Ben Franklin said that um, fish and visitors stink after three days. Which is a really good tip, by the way, if you're spending, you're spending some time at somebody's house, just remember that. Um, your, your, your stay can be too long, right? And the reality is the host can start stinking too. Um, it's, it's really easy to entertain. It's really hard to be hospitable. Why? Because when we're entertaining, we put our best face on, right? And, and we can only put our best face on for so long. We can only put on a show for so long. We can only be on our best behavior for a short amount of time before people start seeing us at our worst, before they start hearing us when we're grumpy, when we're short-tempered, when we're maybe a little selfish. It was only a matter of time in the early church before they needed to, to start having some hard conversations, some conversations that um, would, would help them hash through things, come to understanding, come to love each other, come to repent of, of wrong behaviors. Now, here's the thing, you guys. Mealtimes would have been particularly difficult. Mealtimes, the way we do meals, are, it's incredibly cultural. I don't, we don't think about it because we're just used to our own culture. But what you had here was the clash of cultures coming together, and mealtime became a flashpoint. I mean, think about this, you guys. Jewish people were trained in a very specific way to approach eating, right? They had ceremonial washings they had to do. There were specific kinds of food that were okay to eat and specific kinds of foods that weren't, right? And that was based on, on God's Word, the Old Testament. So there were some foods that were kosher. That were, that were acceptable to the Jewish people. There were other foods that were really just honestly offensive, right? We may love bacon, but that was an offensive food because it was, it was on, the, on, the, on the naughty list, right? It was the, the don't eat list, right? And, and, and not only that, there was a certain order to the eating. There was a, there was a cultural rhythm to mealtime. And for the Jews, it was, it was deeply ingrained in them. Unlike the Gentiles. The Gentiles... They didn't have any cultural washings. Um, they didn't, they'd wear what they want, and, and they would come with their, 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 you know. I mean, just think about it, you guys. They're thrown together. These guys are, are coming together. They're, they're using 
whatever language they want, right? They weren't taught which are the nice words and which are the naughty words. They're just speaking and they're just eating. Like they're just bringing pork and unclean food to the table. Not only that, think about where they're getting their food. During that period of time, one of the most common places for you to get your meat was from the meat market. And the meat market was actually supplied by the temple industry. And what that meant was it was the pagan temples that were using these animals in ritualistic sacrifices, often truly abhorrent and wicked ceremonies. And they would take the leftover meat and they would just put it out on the street as part of the marketplace. And and the Gentiles had no problem just walking down that street and and, and taking that meat and, and bringing it to the table. The Jews would have found that deeply disturbing, deeply offensive. And so what I want you to see is that mealtimes created cultural tension. When I was a believer, um, when I became a believer, um, (laughs) by the time Thanksgiving, the first holiday rolled around, I didn't have a lot of friends. I had a few fans, but not a lot of friends. I had alienated most people. And and the thing with a small college, man, is when holidays come, everybody goes home. Well, I was from California, and, and there was no way I could get home for Thanksgiving. And so we're all sitting there and and Lauren and I, my wife, um, we weren't exactly best friends at that point. We were in the same circle of friends. Um, she didn't like me very much. I honestly was fairly arrogant and fairly abrasive still at that point. And, and so she put up with me. Um, and, uh, and then we were sitting there, and bless her heart, she has a soft heart. She saw that I had nowhere to go for Thanksgiving. And so I don't know if it was guilt or what, but she's like, you know, why don't, why don't you come to my house? bam, I got up, I went and packed my bags, and I'm like, I'm in. Um, the last thing I wanted to do was spend that time at that college all by myself. And so she hadn't even told her parents yet. It was awesome. And, but they invited me in. And so I go to Lauren's house um, for Thanksgiving, and it was a cultural clash. Like, I showed up, and, and everything about the home was different from what I knew. First of all, her parents were still married. That was weird for me. You know, like my parents split when I was young. All my friends, their parents split. That was the norm. What's even weirder is her parents weren't still just married. They, they liked each other. Like they held hands. I remember the first time I saw that being like, I didn't know that happened. And then the whole family sat down and they played board games. Like they enjoyed each other's company. I was like where did I land? This is awesome. And so I was just drinking it in and then it got better. It was called Thanksgiving meal. Oh my goodness. Her mom is a Southern cook and we had every possible kind of food on the table and so much butter. I mean, it was so good. You know what I'm saying? Like it was so good. And the food starts going around. Well, first we prayed, we gave thanks. I had learned enough to know that that's what you do as a Christian. And so, you know, we bowed, we gave thanks and then we're passing the food around and the chatter's going and everybody's laughing and everybody's talking and suddenly the conversation just stops and it's silent. And I'm like, huh? What just happened? And then I'm thinking through and I don't know exactly what the conversation was or how it happened, but I had said the word fart. (laughs) That was the first time that word had ever been uttered at that table. I think it was the first time it had ever been said in that house. I'm not kidding, right? I grew up in a home where the only F word that was off limits was a very different word, you know what I'm saying? And so it really, I mean, I really had no clue that I had stepped over a cultural line. So I'm sitting there and it's silent. And I'm looking around going, is this because I said fart? (laughs) Well, of course, saying it again just sends out another ripple of shock across the table. And thankfully, Lauren's mom starts giggling. She just starts giggling, and then the, the girls start giggling, and everyone's relaxed, and they show me grace, and they invite me into the home, and you guys know how that story ended, man. I ended up marrying Lauren and, and have been enjoying the grace of that family ever since. But here's the thing, you guys. If my presence at that southern table was a tremor, a cultural tremor, the church, the, the, the mealtime at the early church was an earthquake. The cultural forces that were coming together were so divergent, so different, that it was creating a tremendous amount of tension. It's into that setting that Peter walks. Peter comes to visit the church in Antioch. And Peter is one of the leaders in the church in Jerusalem. He's one of the Jewish uh, church leaders, right? And so he comes to the church at Antioch to network with Paul and to support the church in, um, in Antioch. And, and he's coming to these family meals, and um, 
you have to know he was uncomfortable. You have to know that as he's sitting there and, and ooh, that guy just said that word, and, oh, look what he's eating, and uh, you didn't wash your hands, and there are so many things to give offense that it probably knocked him a little off balance, that, that he was just a little... He gets it, yeah, and these guys are saved by grace, just like me. They need grace, just like me. They don't have to prove themselves, right? But, but it probably knocked him off balance. And then certain men came to the gathering from Jerusalem. It says men from James. James was Jesus' brother. He was one of the leaders in the Jerusalem church. These guys came in from the Jerusalem church, and, and, and they pop up in several other places. And it's pretty clear these guys lead with their resume, which means they show up and basically say, we're from the mother church. We're the ones that hang out with James. We're kind of important, right? And they show up and they come to the mealtime and they're shocked. They look at what's going on around this table and, and they're just shocked. And, and, and so these guys, offended, look at Peter and they can see Peter's also uncomfortable. And so they start asking him questions, but they're not the kind of questions that are looking for answers. You know what I'm talking about? Like some people ask questions, but they're not really asking, they're saying right? They're making a point. It's the difference between asking questions and questioning. These guys are showing up and they start questioning the way church is done. They start questioning grace and whether or not this really is the right idea, right? You can imagine the conversation. We don't have it, but you can, you can imagine it. These guys showing up, hey, Peter, you, you okay eating with these guys? Peter's like, ah, dude, they're saved by grace just like we are, right? You're believers in Jesus and they're believers in Jesus. And, and yeah, but, 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 are you okay with their language? They say things that every Jewish kid knows is off limits, right? Surely they know better than that. Well, they come from a different culture, right? And in their culture, those words don't, aren't as, you know, it's, just, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Really? Yeah, they don't even pray before they eat. Surely you're not okay with that. And their food, they're eating unclean animals, right? Now, I get it. We're not under the law. Jesus came and delivered us from the law, but, but at least they're supposed to be guidelines, these guys don't even know the guidelines. They're eating unclean food. They're not just eating unclean food. They're eating food that was sacrificed to idols. They're eating food that was, that was used in temple, pagan worship, and they're encouraging others to eat it. They're eating demonic meat, dude. You okay with that? Aren't you offended? And here comes the kicker. We thought you were serious about holiness. We thought you, of all people, were serious about holiness. What's going to happen when the Jewish believers, where we come from, hear about your behavior? What's going to happen when the Jewish believers hear that you're out here eating meat, sacrificed idols, and hanging out with Gentiles, and, and, and not even trying to correct their behavior? Right? Is this really the best way to deal with these crazy Gentiles? Is this really the way to, to deal with these people who have no rules? No concept of how they're supposed to behave. No concept of what, what is supposed to be good, right? Are we really just supposed to ask them to believe in Jesus and to trust in Jesus and grow in grace? Man, they need some guidelines. They need some rules. They need to be taught how to obey the law. If you keep preaching grace like that, Peter, you're going to keep making Jesus a servant of their sin instead of Lord of their behavior. And you know, man, if Jesus isn't Lord of all, He's not Lord at all. Peter, are you comfortable with that? Now, remember, we've talked about this in previous weeks. What religious people do is they take their cultural convictions and they turn them into measures of holiness, right? So they look at their cultural convictions. I am free to do these things. I'm not talking about biblical guidelines. I'm talking about their cultural convictions. These are the words I'm comfortable using. This is the food I'm comfortable eating. This is the kind of drink I'm comfortable drinking. This is the kind of clothes I'm comfortable wearing. So I take my freedoms, and then I start putting them on others and basically saying, my cultural understanding of what is right becomes your measure of holiness. So they look at Peter, and they say, are you seriously comfortable? And Peter had to admit he wasn't. He wasn't comfortable at all. He was offended every day. He knew they needed, he needed grace just as much as they did. He knew that he was made right by the work of Jesus just as much as they were. But his discomfort with their freedoms caused him to pull back. And what ended up happening is when they came to mealtime, one day he just decided instead of sitting and eating with the Gentiles, he'd just go hang out with his new friends. 
meet with them, the Jewish visitors. No big deal. Except that each meal, he kept going and eating with the Jewish visitors. And pretty soon, the other Jewish believers who had come into the room had to make a choice. Am I going to go sit with the Gentiles like I used to, where I'm offended (laughs) continually, or do I go sit with them? Because I respect them and I want to be accepted by them. And so pretty soon, all the Jews start sitting at a different table, following different kind of rules for eating. And um, even Barnabas fell under the pressure. Barnabas, his name means son of encouragement. He was a great encouragement to Paul. He was, in fact, the apostle Paul's first mentor, the dude that came alongside Paul and walked with him and taught him, in a sense, what it meant to be a man of God, right? So it was a subtle move at first, but it it had tremendous power because it communicated something. What it communicated was, I don't accept you as you are because you're not one of us. See, Peter never said a word, but he was preaching a powerful sermon. What he was saying is, if you want to be accepted by God, you need to be accepted by us. So he was subtly undermining grace. Grace, which says you are loved not because of your performance, but because of Christ's. You don't have to measure up because Jesus measured up for you. Believe in Jesus, and you are forgiven of your sin and made new in Christ. And now just respond to that love. Let God's love break your heart in such a way that you want to love God and love others. Instead of saying that, what they were saying was, love God, believe in Jesus, and be like us. They were communicating their cultural expectations were, in fact, the actual measurements of holiness. And if they didn't measure up, they couldn't be accepted. And this is why Paul had to confront Peter. At stake was the unity of the early church. The early church could have split. At stake was, as well was the very message of the gospel of grace itself. If Paul endorsed a message like this, what he was saying was, grace is not enough. Christ's performance on your behalf isn't enough. You need to act like us, look like us, eat like us, drink like us, dress like us, use the same words as us. So Paul acted in love and confronted for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the church, and honestly, for the sake of Peter. What he did was the most loving thing he could have done for Peter. Now, we don't know a whole lot more about this incident because this is the only place we really read about it. What we do know is that it ended well. How do I know that? Because these guys continued to have a positive, brother-like relationship. They continued to respect each other and to network with each other and to trust each other. They continued to work together. You even have Peter in one of his letters complimenting Paul in a way, basically saying, yeah, Paul, he writes some great stuff. Some of it's really hard to understand. I love that, that Peter had a hard time understanding some of Paul's writings. Makes me feel better. Um, But these guys continued to have a positive relationship, which meant that it went well. There was no rift. They supported each other. Now, here's the key, you guys. The reason this confrontation went well and the key to good confrontation is humility. It's humility. And I'm going to unpack this a little bit more, but here's the thing. Humility allows you to confront others well, and it allows you to be confronted well. See, humility is a word that means low to the ground, like just on the ground. Think about it. Pride lifts you up. It puffs you up. And when you're lifted up in pride, you have to constantly protect your elevation. You can't get knocked down, right? You don't want to get criticized. You don't want to be knocked down or wrong. You don't want to, you got you to protect where you are. When you're humble, you have nothing to protect. That doesn't mean that you're, you're like destitute. What it means is that you're comfortable with the fact that everything you have was given to you by grace. So what are you going to try and take away, (laughs) right? Everything I have was given to me by grace. I'm confident. I'm strong. Humility is strength that allows you to both confront and be confronted without um, making it about your personal agenda or your personal honor or or becoming defensive or counterattacking. All of that is pride. Humility allows you to confront and be confronted. See, religion engenders pride because religion is all about performance. Religion's all about measuring up, wearing the right clothes, saying the right things, doing the right things, achieving the right awards, you know, whatever it is. Whatever it is, I read my Bible every day, I pray every day. Those are not bad things, but they become bad things when you use them as measurements of success. I'm a good Christian because I. You're no longer looking to the merit of Christ, you're looking to your own, right? So religion engenders pride. Grace gives humility. 
And this leads to two very different ways of dealing with conflict. Here's the thing. Grace frees you to confront the right people, to do it in the right way, and to do it for the right reason. One of the hardest parts about good confrontations is having the right conversation with the right person. Take a look at these verses. These are from Proverbs. First of all, Proverbs 16, 28. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. Proverbs 26, 20. For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. All right, think about who these religious people talk to, right? We talked about how grace frees you to confront the right people. Who did these guys have a concern with? Well, they had a concern with the Gentile believers, right? They were concerned about their behavior. They didn't like it. They had a concern with Paul because Paul was the one basically teaching grace in such a way that these guys felt free to not change their cultural behavior, right? So they had a problem with Paul and they had a problem with the Gentiles. And who did they talk to? Peter. (laughs) They looked around and they found somebody who thought like they did, who had the same feelings that they had. They became whisperers. See, that's why they talk in whispers, because they don't really want to talk to the Gentiles. They don't really want to talk to Paul, because they don't really want to be examined in their thinking. They don't really want to have an honest conversation. They just want to complain. They just want to find a group of people that echo their complaint back to them. And and so they find a group of people that have a similar mindset, and they whisper. They're not talking to the people they have a problem with. You guys, it's always easier to talk to people who think like you do, who have the same offenses that you have. And that allows you to build a quiet coalition against the people that you don't like. Build a coalition against the people that make you uncomfortable, that that don't look like you, don't sound like you, don't have the same uh, uh, freedoms that you have. You guys, that's why whisperers whisper. It lets you talk to the people you want to talk to in ways that you want to talk. Now, it's easier It's a lot easier to talk to people who think like you do than to actually talk to the people you disagree with, but I want you to catch this. It's driven by pride, and it is wicked. It is self-serving. It is destructive to a community that is seeking to grow in grace. See, grace frees you from looking to people for approval. That's really what you're doing when you do that. You're you're trying to find people that are going to have the same offense as you so you can be approved in their mutual offense. You look for people that are going to tell you you you're a success, you are right, you are good because we're all offended by that thing, right? Grace frees you from looking to people to give you approval and empowers you to have the right conversation with the right person. Take a look at Matthew 18, 15. This is Jesus speaking to His disciples. He says, if your brother sins against you, if he offends you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Notice the difference. Jesus tells his disciples, when you have a problem, go to the person you have a problem with. (laughs) Don't go to 10 other people first. Don't, Don't post it in some vague way on Facebook so that other people can read it and be offended as well. Don't, don't share it as some kind of really weird, like, prayer request. Christians are so weird. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, will you guys pray for me? I'm really having a problem with this jerk. He's so wrong, but I got to pray. You know what I'm saying? Like, what we do is we, we, we build this, like, we sanctify our sin, right? If we make it a prayer request, well, then I'm, I'm not really talking to others. I'm, I'm really just seeking support. Is that what he says? Go build a coalition. Go get prayer support. Go share it as an anonymous Facebook update. What does he say? Go talk to the person. (laughs) Go talk to them as a brother. Go talk to them as a sister. Don't see them as an enemy. Don't see them as somebody that you can look down on and judge. See, See them as somebody who's a brother or a sister in grace. Look at them eye to eye and talk to them. And then keep the circle as small as possible. Notice that? Between you and him alone. Keep the circle as small as possible. In other words, protect his reputation. Protect her reputation even when you go to talk to her. Yeah, but I don't want to do that. I don't like them. They hurt my feelings. They offended me. I don't want to protect them. Yeah, it's because you don't get grace. 
That's pride. That's sin. See, grace frees us to protect people even as we need to confront them because we're not confronting them to vent. We're not confronting them to make ourselves feel better. We're talking to them because we love them. It is in their best interest. We're doing it to ultimately seek reconciliation, right? You have gained your brother. The whole point behind the confrontation is not to make me feel better, but to bring reconciliation. And that's what Paul did. Paul went straight to Peter. He didn't go to Titus. He didn't go to Timothy. He didn't go to a thousand other people. He, he walked right in. Peter's there, and he confronts Peter. Now, he did it publicly. I think you noticed that from the text. Peter did it in front of everyone. How does that jive, right? Jesus said, do it between you and him alone. Why is Peter, why is Peter being confronted publicly? It's because the circle of influence required him to do it publicly. Leaders often need to be confronted publicly. Why? Because their behavior isn't private. Their behavior doesn't just influence themselves. It's influenced an entire group. And sometimes leaders need to be publicly confronted because not only does their behavior need to be corrected, but the influence that they've had needs to be corrected. And so Paul did it in a public way. He confronted him in front of everyone. Why? Because everyone had been affected. So that he was confronting not just Peter's behavior, but everyone's behavior in that situation and saying, this isn't the outgrowth of grace. God calls us to something better. So he did it in love. He confronted the right person and, and he really did it for the right reason, right? Look at our passage. I want to look at this again and, and then focus on a single verse. Starting in verse 11, but when Cephas came to Antioch, that's Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. That, those are the Jews. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Why did Paul do it? Why did Paul confront Peter? Was it because he was personally offended? Was it because he was afraid that his authority was being undermined? Was it because he was personally miffed? He tells us why. He did it because their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. He wasn't defending himself. He wasn't promoting his own name. He looked at the situation and he could see, Peter, you're going to rob yourself of an experience of joy in the gospel. And in the process, you're going to rob others of the power of grace. You're not keeping in step with the gospel. You're not in tune with the gospel. And since you're not in tune with the gospel, you're undermining the gospel. He's doing it so God can be glorified through the message of the good news and that we could receive the benefit, right? Here's the thing, you guys. It is much easier to approach the right person if you're doing it for the right reasons. Did you catch that? The reason some of you are having such a hard time approaching the person who's offended you is because you're not doing it for the right reason. You're doing it out of a sinful impulse to protect yourself or because you're personally offended. Maybe what they did wasn't even sin at all. The sin is in you. You're taking offense at something that you really just need to give grace for. They're different than you. They don't have the same values as you. They love Jesus like you. They're growing in grace like you, but maybe they're just different and that difference provokes you. And the problem isn't with them. Maybe it's with you. Here's the thing. If we're motivated by the right motive, it frees us to approach the right person. If I'm really being motivated by a love for the gospel, a love for God, a love for grace in my life and in theirs, it frees me to approach the right people. And in fact, frees me from the need to approach others because I can see that when I do that, I'm actually undermining the, the, the progress of grace in the community that I love. Now, if you compare that to the religious guys who were influencing Peter, you see a real difference. Now, Paul tells us not just why he acted, but he, but he also tells us why they were acting. And he, and he does this in Galatians 4. I'm not going to have you flip over there. We'll just throw the verse on the screen. This is Galatians 4, verse 17. He says, they, and that's the false teachers, these Judaizers who were coming in, these Jewish guys who were saying you have to obey the law, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. What's their motive? Their own agenda. 
They want their version of Christianity, their version of what it means to follow God to be promoted, not grace. They want their cultural preferences promoted and valued. They want people to look like them and sound like them and, and eat the same thing and drink the same thing, right? I mean, the, here's the thing. The reason we often have a hard time having hard conversations is because we want people to make much of us. Some of us very simply have a very difficult time having hard confrontational conversations because we're afraid those people will stop making much of us. They may not like us as much. They may not praise us as much. They may not think we're as much of a success. We may lose standing with them and, in fact, with the circle of people that they influence. These guys were willing to shut them out in order so that they would make much of them. Now, what does that mean, shut them out? What are, what are the false teachers trying to shut the Galatians out of? Well, I believe they're trying to shut them out of grace, out of their standing of unconditional acceptance with God. What they're saying is, we want you to earn our acceptance. We want you to perform for us, to be like us, to make us comfortable, and we're going to manipulate you to keep you in our comfort zone. The Jews were, that's exactly what they were doing, right? At the mealtime, when they separated, they were shutting the Gentiles out of the mealtime and saying, until you look like us and eat like us and act like us and use the same language that we use, you're shut out, right? You're shut out. And what they're saying is, in essence, we're trying to pressure you. We're communicating that you don't measure up. You're not like us. So you better get in line to be accepted. You better shut yourself out from the freedom of grace so that you're not shut out from our circle of approval. Religious people are wicked. Religious people are always about promoting their agenda, their version of cultural holiness instead of the gospel. Now, we need to be careful because who are the religious people? It's us. We all do this. We all define circles of comfort and then say to people, if you want my approval, you better stay in the circle, right? Grace challenges our racism, our cultural identities, the things that we think make us superior, our moral standing. I'm right because I do these things. I work hard. I make money. I don't say bad words. I, all these things that we use to make, make ourselves feel good about ourselves and better than others. They become wicked when we start telling others that their acceptance with God is based on their acceptance with us. They confronted the wrong people. They did it for the wrong reason. And this led them to deal with conflict in the wrong way. Look at our verse again. Just change the emphasis a little bit. How were they trying to do this? They were doing it by making much of the Gentiles. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. See, notice what's going on here. Sometimes we manipulate people by being confrontational. Sometimes we manipulate people by being nice. Sometimes we make them feel good, right? They don't like the way the Gentiles are behaving, but instead of having an honest conversation where the Gentiles are, are confronted and they are confronted, instead they flatter. They manipulate. They look around and they say, who has influence here? And how can I influence you so that your influence accomplishes my goal, Right? To, to get you to like me so that you will use your influence for me. You guys, sometimes the people who are praising you the loudest are the most dangerous in your life because they're doing it for self-serving reasons. They're doing it, honestly, for religious reasons. Their real goal is the advancement of their own agenda. So they do what they need to do to get it done. You guys, this plays out in a number of ways in the local church, ways that are, are, are just ironic and almost funny if not if it weren't for so many people getting hurt, right? It's like, it's like somebody coming to you and saying, hey, man, I like you. Thanks. Yeah, I, dude, you look like somebody who has it all together. Not really. Yeah, no, you look great, man. Man, you sound, sound so intelligent. Well, yeah, dude, your words, you're, you're smart. Oh, I like you, right? Tell me more. Why else do you like me? You know, like we're drawn like a moth to a flame when somebody starts feeding our egos. 
when somebody starts telling us things about ourselves that we really like to hear. And so pretty soon we're kind of ensnared in the sense of, of, man, you're really, you're flattering. You're nice. You like me. You're telling me things I like to hear. You're reflecting me back to me in ways I like to look at me, right? And then they're like, yeah, you're great. But what about that guy? Have you, did you hear what he said? He used a word. It's on my naughty list, right? He used a word that, ah, it's not acceptable to me. Is it acceptable to you? It's not acceptable to me. Um, no, it's not acceptable to me either. Ah, okay, good. We're in agreement. You see what's happening? This person gains influence with someone else and then starts complaining about somebody else's language by using their language to slander. They're taking a cultural measurement. I don't like your word and I find it offensive. And they're turning it into a measure of holiness. Because you use that word, you're not accepted by God. While they're actually using their words to slander and tear down the person. They're actually violating an actual precept of Scripture. In their self-righteous attempt to tear down the person that they find culturally offensive. Do you see the irony? And yet we do this all the time. We do this all the time. You guys, churches are destroyed by this kind of internal political manipulation. Churches are destroyed by this kind of cancer of people talking about people instead of to people, using their words in a self-justified, self-righteous way to tear others down while they themselves are feeling better and better about themselves because they're building a coalition of people around them that reflect them to them. This kind of self-serving cowardice comes from sin and not from a deep experience of grace. And don't be mistaken, it is cowardice. We often talk to others instead of the people we need to talk to because grace hasn't freed us into the humble confidence of the gospel. We're cowards. We don't want to risk our reputation. We don't want to risk an unpleasant scene. We don't want to risk having a hard conversation that might be for their good and our good, but we just don't want to go there right? So we're locked up in, um, in a religious performance. See, grace frees us from a need to promote ourselves and selfishly protect ourselves. Take a look at this verse. It's Proverbs 27, 6. It says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. A true friend is willing to say the hard things. A true friend is willing to speak the truth I need to hear, even if I don't want to hear it. A true friend will say the hard things to me that will benefit me, even if they're risking our friendship. Why? Because they love me. And they're willing to risk our friendship for my good. They're willing to risk their comfort for my good. They're willing to risk my esteem of them for my good. That's love, right? A true friend is compelled by love to say the hard things, to have hard conversations, right? They're willing to risk my affection and my approval. Your enemy doesn't care about your well-being, you guys. Your enemy's not going to have hard conversations with you. You know why? Because they don't care. They don't care if you have a cancer in your soul, a bitterness, an unforgiveness, a sin that is going to derail you and ultimately destroy you. They don't care. Why? Because they don't really care about you. They just care about how you make them feel about them. They just care about, about their agenda, So they give you kisses. They flatter you. They tell you the things they know you want to hear. And they do it to get what they want to get. You guys, a friend is willing to cut in to remove the cancer. A friend is willing to hurt in in order to heal. But here's the thing, man. They do it like surgeons, not like butchers. Some of you are like, dude, I'm a total truth teller. I, I just go around and I'm telling people truth all the time. Good job. You're probably leaving a wake of wounded people behind you, right? You're not just out there slashing with your scalpel. A true friend comes with the gentleness and the love of the gospel. They don't just speak the truth and then say, well, you know, I don't know why you have a problem. I'm just speaking the truth, right? They actually come in and love the person and care about the person. They come in like a surgeon, not a butcher. So here's a couple principles, actually three of them for having good confrontations as we wrap up. First, if you're going to be a good friend and come to have confrontation, you need to come in humility. And what that means is that you actually show up asking questions instead of making assertions. 
Don't assume you know everything about the situation. Don't assume you know everything about their motivation. Don't assume, assume you know everything about all of the context that's influencing their choices. Don't assume that you're the one that has it right and they need you. Show up as a friend, asking questions to understand more of their motivations, understand the context of their decisions, to understand more, being willing to be corrected if your understanding is wrong, being willing to be corrected if your offense isn't their sin but yours. Show up humbly, asking questions to find out if you can have a conversation that allows you, both of you, to move into truth. Secondly, make sure you're invested relationally. You have to pay the relational rent. You know what I'm saying? Like if you just show up with a scalpel and then say, hey, by the way, let me just cut you. People aren't going to do that unless they trust you. You need to invest into the relational rent. You need to invest into the trust of the relationship so that people know you love them and respect them and are for them. That allows them to receive the hard words. Otherwise, when you show up, man, they're not going to trust you. Your hard words are just going to come as an attack, not as a gift of love. So you need to invest in the relationship so that you know they know that you love them, right? That you're speaking out of genuine concern for them. Thirdly, when you're in there, man, get the whole thing. Don't turn into a coward halfway through the conversation and leave half of it there because you're just going to have to go back and do it again. Have the whole conversation. Be willing to sit in the discomfort of the conversation long enough that you guys are able to work your way through to an understanding of truth. Remember, the goal is reconciliation, not just saying the right thing. And that means you need to be willing to sit in that conversation long enough that you're actually expressing all of your thoughts, sharing all of your concerns, being confronted and comforted or whatever needs to happen. Don't just get in, say half of it and disappear. That's not love. If you're in there, man, do it right. Don't flinch. Don't pull back. Have the whole conversation. Grace frees us to be motivated by love and rooted in humility so that we don't have to be performing. So we don't have to you know, be afraid every time we have a hard conversation that our identity is at risk. So that when someone has a hard conversation with us, we don't have to prove ourselves or protect ourselves or counterattack or be offended. Because here's the deal. Everybody in this room is a sinner. <laughs> Everybody in this room is a sinner in need of grace, which means we're going to have to have a lot of hard conversations. That's what that means. You put a lot of broken people together in a small space, and people are going to get offended. You're going to do some dumb things. They're going to do some dumb things. They're going to sin. You're going to sin. That's part of life. But God works through that to help us grow in grace. And so we need to expect hard conversations and root ourselves deeply in grace so that we can have them well. Because grace frees us to confront and to be confronted. So moving into response, I want you to consider some questions. Um, Let God kind of speak to your heart. First of all, who are you talking about instead of talking to? Who are you talking about instead of talking to? Who's that person who's offended you? Who's that person who has hurt you? Who's that person that, that has sinned against you? Instead of actually going and talking to them, you're just talking about them. You're like, Steve, well, I don't, I don't really talk about them. I haven't posted anything on Facebook. I haven't asked for any prayer requests. I'm not talking about them. I guarantee you're talking about them, even if it's only in your own head. If you're not talking to them, you're talking about them. Maybe it's just self-talk, but it's still wicked, and it will still undermine the power of grace in your life. If someone has sinned against you and offended you, you need to go talk to them. Who are you talking about instead of talking to? Secondly, Who are the faithful friends you need to listen to instead of run from? Who are the people that speak truth to you, even if it's uncomfortable? Because those are the people that love you. Who are the people that say the hard things to you, and you've maybe stiff-armed and pushed them away a little bit because it got a little too uncomfortable? Those are the people you need to invite more deeply into relationship. And the flip side of this is who are the flatterers that you're inviting into confidence that don't love you? They're just using you to build themselves up. They won't speak the truth to you. They'll never challenge you. They're not concerned for you. They're just using you. Those are the people you need to be careful with. You need to guard your heart with them. Thirdly, what hard conversation is God prompting you to have to be a friend instead of an enemy? Now, in this one, man, you really need to learn to pray. 
because not every hard conversation is your conversation to have. Not every person that needs to be confronted needs to be confronted by you. The question is, who is God prompting you to confront? Who is God prompting you to have a hard conversation with? Who is God prompting you to love by inviting them to see grace in a new way that might be hard for them? And why aren't you doing it? Why aren't you letting God use you in that way? All right, we're going to go on time of response. I'm going to ask you to pray and just let the Spirit of God speak to you in this stuff and let Him free your heart. We're also going to, during this time, take our offering. This is a chance for our members, uh, our regular attenders, to give joyfully and sacrificially. We as a community come together to fund the work of the gospel through this church. And, and so I um, encourage you to give freely and generously and joyfully um, in worship to God. If you're a guest with us, um, we're glad you're here. There's a worship response card in your bulletin. We would love for you to fill it out. Drop it in the basket when it comes around. If you have a prayer request that you want us to pray with you, um, fill that out and drop it in. Our, our leadership team prays over those every week, and we would love to pray with you and for you. If you're a first-time guest, we have a gift for you at Connection Point. Just swing by Connection Point. We'll be happy to give it to you. We're not going to get weird, I promise. Um, all you need to do is swing by. We just want to honor you for visiting. We're glad you're here. Um, and if you want someone to pray with you, if you're not sure how to take the next step of faith, but you feel like God's calling you to take that step, we're going to have some leaders available right over here by the door. They would be happy to pray with you and for you or to counsel you in whatever way is, is helpful. Let me pray for us. We'll go into a time of response. We'll share communion together in a moment. Father God, we thank you that you confront us well, that you've modeled for us the very thing that we're discussing. You have not flinched in showing us our need in demonstrating to us our sinfulness. And yet in your brutally loving honesty, you have not pulled away from us or rejected us or condemned us, but instead sent your son that he might be condemned in our place, that he might bear the weight of our sin, dying in our place and rising again so we could be forgiven. What a tremendous incredible, beautiful message of love. We thank you that you have modeled confrontation well for us, speaking the truth for the purpose of giving life. Help us, Lord, to get better at it. Help us to be motivated by love for the advancement of the gospel. Help us, Lord, to get quick at talking to the right people instead of the wrong people, doing it for the right reason and doing it in the right way. Give us courage, Lord, that comes from humility. 